evening, go to Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23. For a few moments, I want to deal with the thought, don't weep for me. We've been slowly making our way through the account leading up to the crucifixion of Christ, and this brings us to the point where he is going to be crucified. And I want to read verses 27 through 31. And there followed him a great company of people, and of women which also bewailed and lamented him. But Jesus, turning unto them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, Weep not for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming in the which they shall say, Blessed are the women, or blessed are the barren, and the wombs that never bear, and the paps which never gave suck, or the breasts which never nursed. Then shall they begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills cover us. For if they do these things in a green tree, what shall be done in the dry? Verse number 8 again. Excuse me, 28 again. But Jesus turning unto them said, Daughters of Jerusalem, weep not for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. So the title again, Don't Weep for Me. Now as we've been looking at this account, we've been studying all of these different occurrences, and we titled this entire series, This is What They Did to Jesus. Now, if you've been following this, then you know the way to Calvary is filled with many different characters, very interesting characters. Some of them clerics, some of them Roman officials and soldiers, one of them a North African gentleman. But the one thing we do know is with all of the people that are involved with this account, there's one thing that remains the same. That is, there are always people that are following him. Verse 27 makes it very plain. There followed him a great company of people. That's been the story since he came into this world. People were following him at his birth. Don't we recall how the star led the people from the east all the way westward to where he was at? And we don't want to forget the fact that one man, when he was in his late years, he did not die until his eyes had seen the salvation of Christ, Simeon. Anna the prophetess, very elderly woman, spent most of her time in fasting and in prayer and hanging around the temple. She came and saw Christ as an infant, told everybody throughout Jerusalem. Let's not forget the shepherds that heard the message of the good news as they were out there keeping watch of their flock by night. So we know that even at his birth, people were following him. But we're also aware of the fact that people followed him because he fed them. John six twenty six. he says to the people, you're not following me because of the fact you've seen some miracles. You're following me because I just gave all of you bread and fish. He fed 5,000 of them in John 6. Imagine how many people there were that had been hungry on many occasions, but yet because of the supernatural power of God, they were fed. He did that on more than one occasion. Let's not forget, even after the resurrection, he had food prepared for the disciples when they came off the water. 
right there on the shoreline. Some people followed Jesus because of the miracles. They'd never seen those kinds of things before. The testimonies went like this. Not since the beginning of the world have anybody ever opened the eyes of the blind. Jesus did. Jesus did. No one in the Old Testament ever cast a devil out of anybody. But Jesus did. Imagine having a baby that was unable to see or hear or was lame. And Jesus took that child up in his arms and then suddenly healed the child. I would have followed him. I would have loved to have seen the things that were taking place because there was something about the way he ministered to people. A great company of people followed him because of his teaching. Who else but Jesus could get thousands of people along a hillside and teach for 72 hours and the crowd not disperse? I mean, most of us, we have a have a difficult time listening to somebody minister for more than 40 minutes or an hour and a half or something like that. Imagine three days of just being mesmerized by what Christ is ministering to people. So the Gospels are fairly plain. There's always been a great company of people following Jesus. And since he came into this world, that's the way it is. So there's nothing out of the ordinary for verse 27 to tell us that on the pathway to Calvary, as he's preparing to die, there's still a great company of people that are with him. Scripture says that in the midst of that crowd, Jesus' ear caught the sounds of grief. Women weeping, moaning. Who were these ladies? Some of them knew him, some of them knew of him, but yet these ladies, they were following behind him, and they were weeping and crying, and that drew Jesus' attention. Now, you know it would. How many times have have parents been in a room with a lot of different kids from other different families, but then they heard the cry of their own child immediately? It begins to turn. Or maybe you've been somewhere out in public and suddenly heard a a loud wail or a scream or a shriek because somebody was either hurt or in need of help. And then you instantly turn to see what was going on. This man had just spent the last 12 to 18 hours of his life in nothing but pain. His back was lacerated. Likely his face was swollen. He didn't look anything like the man that administered on the sides of the hill or stood on the boat and taught people the word of God and shared parables with people. But yet, despite how bad he looks, bloody, bleeding, the women were right there following behind him. Now, that makes them different from many people that you know and I know because I have had people in my family that have been sick and dying. And, of course, everyone doesn't die the same. Some people, uh, when they're preparing to die or getting ready to die, depending on what's going on, if an organ shuts down, sometimes that body takes in a whole lot of water, swells up. It doesn't even look like the same person. Depending on the kind of disease it is, sometimes a person can lose a whole lot of weight in a a body that at one time was over 200 pounds. It kind of just dwindles down to less than 100 pounds. Because of the disease. And I've seen family members when folks have said, go visit so-and-so, go visit your friend so-and-so. They're in a difficult time and it's troublesome for, for them right now. And I've heard people say, I don't want to go and see them in that condition. 
I don't want that to be my memory of them. That's not how these women were. These women saw Jesus at his best, and now they're seeing Jesus at his worst. And with all of the difficulties, the scripture says in verse 27, there followed him a great company of people and of women. That means despite the troubles and the trials, the ladies were there. Those are the kinds of friends that you want. You don't need somebody around you that looks at your trouble and say, look, this is just too much for me. I can't handle this. I've seen that happen. I've seen people in in relationships and people end up getting sick. And then I've seen husbands. I've seen boyfriends. I've seen people walk out of those relationships because they say, I can't deal with this kind of an illness. I'm leaving. That's not God's plan. Nevertheless, we have an example here of some women that were following behind him and every tear that hit the ground. I'm sure that thing grieved him. It was breaking his heart because he had information they did not have. And hearing all of that wailing, it gets his attention. Now, I don't hear it out here too often, but in funerals, for African Americans, it's not, it's not atypical to see when they, in that funeral, when they're getting ready to close that casket, to find some son or daughter, even adults, that start fainting or start wailing and screaming at the top of their lungs. I haven't seen that out here. But it's not unusual. Can you imagine a loud company of ladies screaming? I recall when this man passed away in our home in Jordan. And this gentleman was over the age of 100. And I remember we were back there preparing the body and and, and everything. And the sons were down in the backyard digging. uh, They were not digging a hole, but they were building the casket. I could look right out the window and see them out there doing that. And so we're here washing down the body and all of that. But by now the family had come. The living room was filled with nieces and aunties and sisters. I'd never heard people wail and cry in unison like that. I mean, if something break your heart, Jesus heard these ladies behind him and he turns to these daughters of Jerusalem and notice what he says in verse 28. Don't cry for me. That's a command he's never given that I'm aware of. He says, don't cry for me. He said, well, if you're going to spend your time weeping and crying, you need to think about weeping and crying for yourself and weep and cry for your children. Now, Luke 19, verse 41 tells us that when Jesus came to Jerusalem, it says he came near the city, beheld the city and wept over it. He said, if you have known even the least in this your day, the things which belong to your peace, but are now hid from your eyes, for the days shall come upon you that your enemies shall cast a trench about you and surround you and keep you on every side. And they shall lay even lay thee even to the ground and thy children within thee. And they shall not leave in thee one stone upon another because thou knewest not the time of thy visitation. Jesus had some knowledge, some foreknowledge, and he could see what was going to happen to Jerusalem, and he was weeping over the city before it ever even occurred. Has it ever grieved you that your friends or family members were making bad decisions and you could see what the repercussions of those decisions would be? 
Has it ever grieved you so much because you, you're wanting to stand out there and say, look, people, the road, the bridge is out down a little bit further. There's a dead end sign out there. There's a sign up that says construction. You need to stop and turn around. But people don't listen. Here's what happened with Jesus. So Jesus turns to these ladies and he has in his mind all of the prophecies of Luke 21 of what's going to happen to Jerusalem. How the Romans are going to surround it. How all of Jerusalem is going to be, uh, the people are going to be sent out as captives in these foreign lands. Jesus makes it very plain. Don't weep for me, weep for yourselves because the days are coming. This man says, I can see through a spirit of prophecy what's coming. Now Jerusalem was a significant place. Luke 21 tells us that The enemy is going to come, surround Jerusalem, and then at that time, when the armies have come, those that are in Judea will try to flee to the mountains and let them that are in the midst don't leave the city, it says, but let not them that are in the countries enter therein too, for these are the days of vengeance. Now imagine this. 500 years before Jesus was born, Ezekiel prophesied in chapter 36 that there would be people that would come, take over Jerusalem, Israel. Israel itself would be laid waste. It basically would become a a barren and desolate place. Ezekiel 36 says that the children of Israel would be scattered throughout the nations of the world, and even there they would profane his name among the heathen. But then Ezekiel began to prophesy, and he said that the vegetation was going to flourish, the wildlife was going to return, the people would multiply upon the land. He saw it 500 years before Jesus ever came on the scene and started prophesying other things. When the Romans came, it was as Jesus had prophesied, thousands of Israelis became slaves and captives in foreign nations. Jerusalem came under the dominion of an uncovenanted people, the Romans. And it was not until in the 60s, when the Israelis were able to overtake the Arabs and gain control of Jerusalem, that the prophecy in Luke 21 had been fulfilled where it says, of Jerusalem it shall be trampled underfoot and trodden down of the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. It wasn't until May of 1948 that Israel became, for the first time in 2,500 years, its own sovereign country. Sovereign nation. Ezekiel saw 2,500 years before it occurred. The late 1800s when the European leaders were talking about what to do concerning the Jewish problem. There were too many of them. They were multiplying. So the leaders were saying, what can we do? We need to try to get them their own residence. People talked about a number of different places. They even talked about a country in Africa. But eventually they settled on what was then called Palestine. Little by little, when the Jewish people began to return home, they returned to a a land that had been under the control of the Ottoman Empire for so long, nearly 500 years or better. 
Arabs had cut down who knows how many trees, didn't replant anything. It was barren, desolate, as had been prophesied. You know from the, the books that were written during the time that the wildlife pretty much was nil. But when you look at a satellite picture today of that little sliver of land next to Mediterranean Sea, you realize that God has done something great. The moment the people started coming back, supernaturally God began to work. Jesus saw the troubles ahead. He said to the ladies, you ought not be crying for me. You don't realize how difficult things are going to be. If you think this cross is bad for me, if you think that the, the trials and the judgments that I've had to face are difficult, I'm telling you it's going to be very, very bad. And he says, here's how bad it's going to be in verse 29. He said, the days are coming in which they shall say, blessed are the barren. Now, in the Old Covenant, you know that the desire of the ladies' hearts was very often to bring forth seed, in particular male seed, to carry that name. We remember from Samuel the story of Hannah. Hannah wanted a child so bad she wanted to bring a child into the world for her husband and how she wept and prayed in the presence of God. And it talks about Eli the priest looking at her, thinking she was intoxicated. She wasn't intoxicated. She was making a covenant with God. She said, Lord, if you bless me, bring forth male child from these, this womb, I'll lend this child to you all the days of his life. Eli didn't know what was going on, and as is the case many times when people don't understand what God's doing in your heart, and when you're trying to pour your heart out as an offering to God, people look at you and they think you're kind of odd. But the Lord blessed her, but that issue was very important in ancient times. And it certainly hadn't changed in the time of Christ. But the Lord said there are days coming that are going to be so bad, so filled with anxiety, agony, pain, and suffering, that people are going to say, blessed are those who have no children. Who would have thought that? That it would go in reverse. Blessed are the barren. (laughs) whose paps had never nursed a child. Now, I think we can learn something here also in verse 31. It says, if these things are done in a green tree, what shall be done in a dry? A green tree represents life. A green tree represents uh, something flourishing. You see, And with Christ here, and with miracles taking place and lives being changed, thousands of people following him. He said, now, if, if you good folks would do this in the midst of a green tree, which is the season, see, season, springtime, the trees start budding. Everything starts becoming beautiful. If you folks will do that here with me right here, right now, and I'm the one that is producing all of this life, what are you going to do during a dry time? There's no life. There's nothing coming forth. These folks can't understand exactly what it is that that's being said. But imagine, imagine having somebody like Christ in this world and then people actually crucifying him. That's what happened. The Bible says had the princes of this world known what they were doing, they would never have crucified him. But I'm telling you right now, if Jesus was here today, if Jesus was on planet Earth today, preaching the gospel, healing the sick, casting out devils, ministering the word of God, loving people as he did in the gospels, 
The same spirit that was in these people that crucified him then would be in people today. They crucify him today. You know they do it because you see what has happened throughout church history to the people who are his disciples. Something about the power of God that changes a season in people's life. They begin to fight against God and they begin to fight against themselves. I think there's something else interesting that we can observe in this, and this has to do with the character of the Lord. And if you've got one of those Bibles that have the words written in red, you can see it in verse 34, verse 43, in verse number 46. And this has everything to do with his character. And here's a man that is marching to Calvary and is thinking about other people. He says to the ladies, don't weep. He says to this man on the cross, he says, now, you're going to be with me in paradise. In the Gospel of John, he's on that cross hanging there, and he says to his mother, behold your son. He says to his his disciple, behold your mother. He's hanging on the cross, still thinking about other people. On the cross. Now notice his character, though. In verse 34, this man, he's he's on the cross now, hanging there, being crucified. The Roman soldiers, think of the role that they had to play in this. They had to pull out their big mallets after the Lord had laid down upon that cross. And and you think about that. He voluntarily did that. The scripture says, nobody takes my life, but I lay it down. How hard it would have been for me, as much as I don't like some aspects of pain. For me to have to lay there on the cross and keep my hands still or in place and then allow somebody to pound a nail right through it. I'd have been pulling my hand and jerking my hand back and forth. But because of your sin and my sin, he laid there. And that Roman soldier probably had a nail that was anywhere from 8 to 12 inches long. I mean, you've got to lift up a man's body. That nail's got to be... It's got to be long enough and thick enough to go through whatever part of this hand or wrist that's going to be nailed. It's got to go through the wood. And once it goes through the wood, on some occasion, not every occasion, but on some occasion, they would actually take the cross, turn the cross upside down with the person face down in the dirt, and then take the nail sticking through the cross and then beat it so that it would bend, so that when they placed the body up, the body wouldn't come out, it wouldn't pull the nail out of the wood. Think of that. A Roman soldier that had a hammer and did that. That one that later on said, truly, this was the son of God. I wonder how did he even sleep at nights the rest of his life, knowing that he was part of the crucifixion of the greatest man on this planet ever lived. But this man, hanging between earth and heaven, hanging on the cross with the Roman soldiers, they're gambling for his garments because, after all, he's going to be dead. He won't need them anymore. This man's hanging on the cross, and he says, Father, forgive him. They don't know what they're doing. Do you have that kind of character? Do you have the kind of character that when people are working to undermine you, going after you, coming after you angrily, when people are spitting in your face and saying the worst and the most vile things to you, are you the kind of person that has the character that can say, Father, forgive them? They don't know what they do. But take it in another direction. Can you pray this prayer, Father, forgive them, even though they know what they're doing. 
Because there are some people that will say things to you they know gets under your skin and they'll say it because they know it gets under your skin. Can you pray that prayer? Do you have that kind of heart? You ought to pray that God gives you that kind of heart. Father, forgive them for they don't know what they do. Then the next sentence says they parted his raiment and cast lots. He prayed for them. They didn't change. He prayed for them. They didn't stop what they were doing. They kept on gambling. Notice the next one there in verse, verse 43. He said, Verily I say unto you today, you'll be with me in paradise. Here's a man that according to verse number 32, he was crucified with two thieves. That's the scripture, crucified with two thieves. Now think about this. These two thieves and murderers didn't care anything about God, didn't care anything about Jesus. One is even over there mocking him, saying, if you're really the son of God, you ought to get us all down from here, but you must be as guilty as we are. The one hanging on the other side, no, no, this man, he hadn't done anything wrong. We deserve to be up here. This man ought to be free. And that man said, Lord, remember me when you enter into your kingdom. Something happened to that thief between the time he first heard about the Lord and now him hanging on the cross, life still in his body, but he's thinking about eternity. Something happened. Jesus said, this day you'll be with me in paradise. Here's a man in the midst of all of this pain and agony, but yet he's still witnessing and loving people as he's dying. Isn't that a good way to go out of the world? Let people know that you love God and then invite them to come and sit down and enjoy the marriage supper of the Lamb. Are you that kind of a person in your character that when when you're passing through an excruciating trial, you can still have a mind thinking about heaven? Some people aren't like that. Some people, when they go through pains and struggles, they can't think about God at all because they get offended at God. God really cared about me while he let me go through this. That kind of a thing. I, I, I had an acquaintance. He preached a, a meeting up in Canada one time. And when he had gotten up there on uh, one of the days when he wasn't preaching a morning meeting, him and the pastor went to a grocery store to pick up a few items. When that pastor pulled up in that parking lot, he saw a man that used to go to the church, but didn't go to the church now. But he used to go to the church when his wife was alive. But his wife died with cancer. And he just turned bitter. And so the pastor said to the evangelist, he said, well, I just hate to see that guy standing there. He jumps me every time he sees me now, you know. And uh, when they pulled in, that pastor got out and made his way to the grocery store. That visiting evangelist stayed right there in the car. And sure enough, that man went right over there and jumped on that pastor and said, what, what is this? You, you folks call yourself a church that believes in God and trusts God and believes in miracles. And my wife is now dead. And I mean, what, what is all? He's going on and on in front of all of these people. And the pastor just walked in the grocery store. And when he looked over in the car, he saw that visit, <clears throat> visiting evangelist. He went in on over there and started in with him. And so that, that, that preacher... He he said to him now, he said, let me ask you a question. He said, uh, that, that church, this man, pastor, he said, were you a member of that church? He said, I was. He said, your wife was a member of that church. He said, she was. He said, that, did you believe what they preached in that church? I did. 
that all the years that you were there, you heard what they taught and what they ministered. You believed in everything they preached. He said, I did. He said, why didn't you heal your wife? You putting it on them. Why didn't you do it? You say you believe what they believe. See, it's, it's easy in the midst of pain and difficulty to, to start focusing on all kinds of other people being the problem, but to have a mind that still is thinking about heaven. Today you'll be with me in paradise. That's a person with character. That despite all the difficulties, I can still right now, even though I'm being crucified, pain here, pain there, pain around here from my body hanging, yet I'm still thinking about the king. And in verse 46, you can see where he says, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. In some situations in life that are so tragic, you don't have the inward strength on your own. You need to give that thing over to God and turn yourself over to the king. That's what you should do. You're passing through a valley. You're passing through temptation. A tough trial has come your way. Don't think that you're strong enough in and of yourself. You have to be able to say, Father, I give all of this to you. My heart, my mind, my soul, my strength. I commend it all to you. It doesn't simply mean, say, Father, take me home. Here's a man that's given himself over entirely to God. He said, God, this body belongs to you. You can do whatever you want to do with this body. That's how Paul lived. That's how Paul lived. (coughs) Paul said, there have been many times I've fasted. There have been many times where I've been in prison. There have been many times I've been beaten. There have been many times I've preached the gospel. He said, I've learned to be full. I've learned to be empty. I've learned to be hungry. I've learned to be content. He said, in whatever condition, whatever state I'm in, I've learned to be pleased with God. Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. Think about that this week. You run into trouble with somebody. Think about that when you run into that man or woman that honestly believes they can push every button in your life and cause all kinds of problems for you. Be able to pray that prayer. Cry out to God, Father, into Thy hands I commend my spirit. Lord, you know how angry I am right now. I'm ready to explode, but God, I give all this to you. See, every one of us in here right now, and that that old nature that lives inside of us, that thing is like a wild lion. A wild lion. And and if you go to a cage where a lion is is all holed up, if you got a stick and you go to poking at that lion, you better believe that lion's going to remember who you are. If he ever gets out, he's going to be waiting for that day when that cage door is open and he's going to remember exactly what you've done. Well, inside of us, there's this old nature and I can promise you, you cannot tame it. Scripture says you 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 have to reckon yourselves dead. You're crucified with Christ. Paul said, I die daily. Every day that you're working with this word to crucify that old man, you're poking that line. You're poking it. And given the right circumstance, you let somebody push you enough buttons and I promise you that old man will come flying out and that lion will rage. And before you know it, you've unleashed all kinds of words and you wish to God later on. Oh, my God. Wish I hadn't said that. See, Sometimes it's good to be able to say to God, Father, I give that to you. I prayed plenty of times whenever Tiffany and I have to go back to the city. To visit our folks where there's a lot of gang activity, a lot of crime and all that kind of a thing. And I prayed over and over again, Father, when, when we're uh, when we're in those places, Lord, keep us out of situations where this old man could come out. 
Keep me out of situations where somebody reach out and grab my wife and disrespect her. See, Father, keep that from ever happening. Please, God. We, we, we don't want, we don't want all of that, all of that manifesting because you don't know what is in you until the circumstance arises. And you realize, oh my God, where did that come from? It's in there. It's in there. Jesus knew what he was doing and left this example. And I'll conclude by simply saying this. When we think about who we're following, are we following the resurrected Christ? Are you chasing after him? Are you pursuing him? At the same time, are you prepared for what's ahead? He said to the ladies, don't cry for me, but weep for yourselves. The days are coming. One day the trumpet of God is going to sound. We which are alive and remain are going to be caught up to be with the Lord in the air. The scripture says in Revelation chapter 6, Jesus is going to walk over to his father's throne. He's going to have a book that's got seven seals on it. He's going to start opening up those seals. Those will be the judgments that will be poured out into the earth. There will be trumpets that will be blown. Vials or bowls of judgments poured into the earth. He said to those daughters of Jerusalem, don't cry for me. There's stuff up ahead that you need to be worried about. So rather than worrying about me, prepare yourself for the days to come. And when we think about what Jude says and Second Peter says and Second Thessalonians says, we should do everything we can to make sure we're right with God doing everything that he wants us to do. Jesus hung on that cross between two thieves and he never changed. Those thieves never changed him. He changed one of those thieves. If you can walk in the midst of evil men and not change, you've got, you've got a good character. If you can work around evil people and maintain your character, that, 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 that's a good thing. Here's one man over here mocking Jesus. Here's another man over here saying, can I go to heaven with you, Jesus? Here's one man over here died in his sin. Never did change. Stubborn as a mule. Here's another man over here came, came to know Christ and accepted him and he died to sin. But then here's Jesus in the middle. He died for sin. Three people hanging on the cross. One man died for us. But another man accompanied to heaven. I hope and pray that be us. God give us the character to live like this in a world that will crucify Christ every day if given the opportunity. Let's all stand. All right. I imagine some of you folks are masters at poking the lion. Yeah. We could find out what button it is. We find out what what really will bring it out of Mr. Brueggemann over there. Just you know, go to poking that lion. Go to messing with Jen. I mean, he come alive in a heartbeat. I'm telling you. One thing I do know about uh, people, you start messing with children, Spouses, personal property, and sometimes best friends. Oh, you can cause some problems. But I pray God gives us all the character to be strong like Jesus was on the cross. And then I also pray just like the Lord's Prayer says that the king won't lead us into places like that where we can be tempted to sin. Let's pray. Father, it's good to know that <clears throat> your word is true. You've given us a lot to meditate on and to think about. And Father, your word says the anointing destroys the yoke. The anointing breaks the yoke. 
But God, you said that we're crucified with you because of what your son did at Calvary. So God, lead us, guide us every day. But Lord, we pray that you'd keep us from those instances. Lord, something on the inside of us could come out that certainly wouldn't glorify you. Give us restraint. Give us humility. Help us to be meek. Help us to set a watch about our lips. Help us to keep our mind stayed on you. As the word says, those that keep their mind on you, you'll keep them in perfect peace. Father, we know that greater is he that's in us than he that's in the world. So throughout this week, Lord, as we come in contact with evil men, evil women, unbelievers, people that don't know you, give us the grace, O oh God, to live like Jesus did. Then even God to live a, a life where we die daily as Jesus did. These things, Almighty God, we're praying for. In Jesus' name, amen, 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 amen. Praise the Lord. I'm having a time in this Luke 23. Folks, I'm telling you.